from a variety of perspectives. <coughs> and um, so I would, I would like to spend some time going through this text with you this morning. We're going to cover the whole chapter, Lord willing. It, it's an interesting text because, firstly, it sounds like it's mere, um, as I've used the term before, color of a, of a larger story. It sounds like it's just a historical narrative, does it not? You start from chapter 27, verse 1, go all the way through verse 44, and it sounds for the most part like it's just a historical narrative that gives color to a greater story that is the book of Acts. I would argue it is not so. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that if you ever have read any commentaries in the book of Acts, when they get to chapter 27, a lot of commentators really struggle with chapter 27. And the reason why they struggle with it is because it's not that it's difficult to understand, it's what do we do with it? It's this, this chapter-long, 44-verse-long section that doesn't seem to add anything to the storyline of the book of Acts. And I think in so saying, there's a lot of mistakes that are made. It is interesting that, that when you look at what, what commentators have said on the chapter, you find, for the most part, there's people who, who are trying to connect the chapter to maybe being like a New Testament analogy of the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah. I don't see how that works that well, although I've tried to read through that and try with an open mind to understand how they're making the connection between the two. Uh, certainly you have a shipwreck. Um, there was no shipwreck in Jonah, but he was thrown overboard. There was a storm in both of them. Uh, there is an ultimate ending at a great city. You see those type of things in the big picture, but I'm not sure that the connection is there because the primary issue with Jonah is that he's in rebellion, and Paul clearly is not. Um, some have tried to argue that that analogy is like the antithesis showing the, the resolution of the story of Jonah, but again, I think that's really stretching it. Uh, some have tried to make it into this big, vast allegory, but again, I, I'm not sure that that works with the text. Um, so most commentators fall back on the idea that it is just color for the book of Acts, an extended, extended color of the, of the storyline. Interesting, I, f I found several commentators that said, that what Luke is doing here is he's just um, using his creative literary skills and writing this great literary uh, storyline that we have in chapter 27. I struggle with that one big time because I don't find anything in the scriptures is merely just for, I'm going to show my, my literary skills. So that kind of it, it falls flat. I think there's something really important going on in the book of Acts chapter 27. As a matter of fact, I would argue there's something really great going on in the book of Acts that we oftentimes miss. You remember when we first got into the book of Acts itself, what we said right in the very beginning, that the title of the book, the name of the book that we know historically is what? The Acts of the Apostles, right? And if you remember way back in chapter 1, I said, I don't think that's the correct title for the book. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 1 to chapter 28 of this book that we are studying that shortens down to Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles because firstly we know that there are other people identified in there that are not Apostles, correct? And, they are demo and, and Luke is recording what they do as well, does he not? Of course he does. So it's not the Acts of the Apostles just from that perspective. But more importantly, 
this is not the acts of the apostle. Luke's goal was not to present the working of the apostles or the doings of the apostles. What Luke is focusing in on is captured in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Luke records, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth or the ends of the earth. So certainly there's activity that's going to take place. Luke, I'm sorry, Acts 1 makes that very clear, right? Verse 8, there's going to be activities, actions that are going to take place. However, the emphasis of Acts 1.8 is not the activities that people, the apostles and others who follow the apostles' teachings, it is not focused on the acts of the apostles and those who follow, but quite to the contrary, the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit in people, apostles and others, that God the Holy Spirit makes alive. Does that make sense? So the focus is on what the Spirit does in people, and the result then is what? That people act, right? They do. So the book is not about the acts of the apostles, nor is it about the acts of those who follow the teachings of the apostles, it is about the acts of the Holy Spirit as evidenced in the Spirit's working in people's lives. Now, that's a long title of a book. But I think it's the right title of the book. And I think when we get to Acts chapter 27, that's what we're going to discover. What we're going to do, now we've seen that every step of the way, have we not? It's every single page of the book of Acts. And by the way, that's very consistent with the rest of the New Testament teaching, is it not? The focus is not primarily ever upon the acts or the works of a person or a group of people. Paul himself says it is not up to the one who wills or works, but it is up to the Lord who shows mercy. Very important we get that. The focus is always upon the one who works in us and through us. We work because he works. That's the point every step of the way. And I think too often we get into that mindset again where salvation is by grace through faith alone, that is justification, but sanctification is just something we do. And it's dependent upon our doing. And we miss the point. Any doing that we have is because the Spirit is working in us. And we find that very thing here in this text. We've got a number of people and groups of people that we need to identify and so what I want to do is I'd like to break this text out into two or three sections. Well, three sections. Number one, I want to identify who the people are. Number two, I want to go through the actual color of this chapter because there's some things that are stated in here that would probably be good to understand because it's kind of foreign to most of us. It might, might not be foreign too much to you, Jim, because you're a sailor. But um, for most of us, it's going to be um, not a commercial sailor, but you sail. Um, but some of the things said are going to be somewhat foreign to us in this text if we don't understand them, so the color won't, won't be as valuable. So we're going to identify that as well. But then we're going to zero in on the point of the whole text. And I think the whole point of the whole text is much different than how we typically look at it. I'm not going to read through it over and over again for all three points uh, for sake of time. But we're going, to, we're going to, first of all, let's identify the people You'll notice the very first person that is mentioned is not, or first people that is mentioned comes out in verse 1. 
It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for, Cis for, for Italy, I'm sorry, so the first identification is what? In the phrase, I just, it is what? We. The first group of people is a group merely identified as we. Now, we don't know exactly who is in the we, except we know two people are in the we. The one person is Paul, because Paul is, is, going being, is sailing, right? The second one is the author of the book, which is Luke. So we know it's at least those two. We're going to find out there's a third one there in just a little bit, and there may be others. But the third one shows up uh, in a little bit uh, in verse, uh, verse 2. At the end, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. We've been introduced to him before. When Paul was ministering in Thessalonica, there was a guy by the name of Aristarchus that came to faith in Christ. The Spirit moved in him. He came to faith in Christ. And from that time onward, what does Aristarchus do? He leaves everything behind and he follows Paul and he ministers alongside Paul every step of the way to the end. That's what we see here. So here's Aristarchus. He's also traveling with Paul and Luke. There may have been others, but at least those three are, are the we being referenced in uh, verse 1 and then brought to more light in verse 2. We're introduced to another person by the name of Julius in verse uh, 1. So I'm jumping back from verse 2 to verse 1. Julius is a centurion of the August, Augustan cohort, and his name, of course, is Julius. Um, Julius, just to give you a little background, Julius, whoever this guy is, we know a couple things. He's a centurion, which means he's in charge of a hundred people. This cohort would have been a group of a thousand soldiers. So he has a hundred soldiers within the greater group of a thousand soldiers. As the description, the Augustan cohort, this is a very, for lack of a better term, highfalutin, important cohort. These guys reported directly to Caesar. These are important people. If you could cut, bring it into America, it's like the, the highest soldiers, the most important soldiers that you could think of. Uh, today it may be like, um, um, uh, what is it, uh, six. Um, SEAL Team Six or something like that. I don't know. I'm just throwing a figure out. What's that? or the Rangers, or some, some small group, highly skilled, very professional. If they need somebody to do the most impossible task, this is the people they'd, go, they'd turn to. This is who he's, he's part in charge of. He's in charge of a hundred of those. That's the person, Julius. You wander your way through, and you'll notice uh, elsewhere several times in the Scriptures, it talks about there's a group of other people on their way, 276 of them on the boat. These are just generic people. 276, there's a debate whether it's 276 passengers or if it's 276 passengers and sailors and soldiers, and we don't have any answer to that. But whatever it is, it's at least 276 people. It could be 276 plus plus on the ship. Not a monstrous ship, not a tiny ship. The, uh, um, uh, Josephus records one time he got on a ship uh, around the same time frame and it held 600 people, just to give you an idea. So it's a good-sized ship, but it's not a massive ship. So those are generally the group of people that are here on, on the ship. You've got uh, uh, Julius, his 100 soldiers, 276 people, sailors, 
that's the group, and the small people uh, are Aristarchus and Luke that are with him tra uh, traveling. So, now we've covered section number one. Who are the people that are on this ship, that are in the storyline? For the most part, before we get off of this discussion generally about the group of people, the groups of people who are with them, we know very little, again, about the 276. We know very little about the sailors. We know very little about the soldiers other than Julius. We know quite a bit about Aristarchus. We know a whole lot about Paul and a whole lot about Luke. But we don't know a whole lot about, about the rest of the people. And we know very little more. We do know that the soldiers, I'm sorry, the sailors are very self-interested. They're just consumed with themselves. It's an interesting study. We'll bring that up a little bit later. Um, but the soldiers, and we know the soldiers are very obedient. They do what they're told to do. So that's about all we know about the rest of them. We do know some more I'll bring to light in a little bit about Julius. Okay, so let's look at the background of the text so that we can just identify a few things. It is, first of all, probably late September, early October, that this ship sails. Uh, there's a lot of information in the text that describes that, including the time when they were supposed to be fasting, which is, it says it's already passed, which would have been in September, early October. It's the uh, Day of Atonement uh, celebrations, including it, there's days of fasting that go on. It says that has passed at one point. So we know that's somewhere probably... Uh, mid-October when this storyline is developing. It seems like there is an early storm that arises. It's tough sailing. They're struggling with the sailing. Why? Because they're going from east to west. They're going from over by Troas, which is on the, on the um, uh, east side, and they're heading west towards Rome. And that's going to be a tough sail. Even the best of days, that's a tough sail. Even in the middle of the summer when sailing is easiest, it's a tough sail. Heading west is always a tough sail, isn't it, Jim? Why? Because the wind's blowing from the west or northwest. Typically, that is the case. And so when you're battling that kind of a storm, that means you're going to be doing a lot of, I'm not sure the exact terms, tacking. Any other terms? Tacking works. You're going to be going back and forth and back and forth. If you're going with the wind, you, have, you, can, you can sail real nicely. Otherwise, you're cutting back and forth. You'll recognize it talks about getting into the lee side of some islands. That's where the wind is not strong because the island is blocking it. And so you can move easier on that side. Um, so there's a, a struggle going on in the best of times during this time frame when they're going uh, towards the west. It is most likely the last trip for the ship for the year. Because come winter, they, there's no sailing that's going to go on. So they're making this last trip. There's actually two ships involved. They switched to another ship eventually. Uh, there's, there, it's the last trip before they shelter for the winter, thinking they can probably squeak by one more, one more trip. But as they're traveling... There's concern about the weather. It's getting worse and worse. And they're deciding maybe we should just winter where we're at. And they decide, no, they're not going to. As you know, you, Tom read through the story. And so they attempt to go one more time, even though Paul said, don't do that. It's my recommendation to you not to do that. Now, obviously, Paul's not a sailor. So, you know, his, his words are probably on, on the issues of when to sail, when not to sail. Probably not going to be highly... Uh, listened to, and in light of the storyline, is not listened to. So they attempt to go again, and then a, a northeaster storm blows up, or as we would call it here, a nor'easter. 
And it came early. And it blew hard. It blew so hard. And just to give you an idea, the Scriptures record here in the text, it was blowing for how many days? Fourteen days it was blowing so hard they could not even eat. That's a pretty tough storm. Fourteen days blowing so hard they despaired for their very lives. The hope of getting to safety had vanished from every way they could look at it. It was a very difficult time. The wind was blowing hard and they could not win the battle. Now there's all sorts of little pieces in the storyline. Like, for example, it talks about um, things like uh, throwing out an anchor. They, um, at one point, it's most likely referring to, while they're sailing, a sea anchor. It, which is, if you could picture a sea anchor, it's like a parachute at the end of a rope that you'd throw out and it dragged through the water. And the whole point of it is the, the, sea, the, the wind is driving you and you can't stop it, you can't control it, and you don't want to go where it's sending you. And so you're trying to slow the whole process down so you could react and so you could control what you're doing. A big heavy rope that would catch a whole lot of water and would drag and slow you down so that you would not be at the mercy of the wind. That's basically what that is. You'll find in um, verse... Um, 17, it says, well, verse 16 says, Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That means they got things lashed down. After hoisting it all up, including the, some sails, they used supports to undergird the ship. The idea of using supports to undergird the ship is merely that they just put some ropes underneath it and tied the ropes across the top as tightly as they possibly could. Why? Because the ship was leaking most likely because it was getting battered so bad. They're wooden ships. They're getting battered and they're trying to hold the ship together so that the leakage wouldn't be bad enough to sink the ship or parts start falling off. So they used heavy ropes to tie it off. That's the whole point of that. And then fearing they would run aground, um, on the, on, they were violently storm-tossed. They began the next day to jettison the cargo. So now they're starting to do what? They're just starting to lighten the ship up. Why? Because they're afraid they're going to take on too much water. The higher you can get, get the, the, uh, the ship above the water line, the less water you're going to take in over the top. And so they're just trying to keep it from sinking. Verse 19 says, On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, tackle, oftentimes you think of as the things you would use to raise and lower the, the sails. Perhaps that wasn't what they were referring to with tackle here because later on they put sails up. So most likely tackle is other tools and other equipment that they would use that are peripheral equipment, but they're heavy things, and so they're throwing them, jettisoning them, them overboard, but later on they do put up sails, so they must have kept whatever tackle they needed to raise the, sail, the sails up at least. So I just want to point that out to you. You'll notice at one point, I'm trying to find where it is off the top of my head here, um, that it says they were coasting along on the lee side of, a, of, of an island. Uh, I don't know where it is right now. I'm pulling a blank. Be that as it may, because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the color. When it says they're coasting along, it doesn't mean what you think it means. When, when, when you think about coasting along, what does it sound like? You just cruise, letting it, letting it go wherever it goes, right? You're just coasting. Like going down a hill, you take your foot off the gas, you don't touch the brake, you're doing what? You're coasting. That's not what this means. When it says you're co they were coasting, it means that they were trying to stay as close to the coast as they possibly could 
for the Lee get the effects, the favorable effects of being on the Lee side of the island. So they're trying to hug the coast as tightly as they could without doing what? Running aground. And yet that's their only, that, that narrow little avenue that they have that they can possibly continue to get headway is that place that is called coasting. I don't know if they still use that term today or not, but that's the term they would use back in that day. So they were coasting along. means something very different. They're working feverishly to stay in that coasting area because otherwise they're just coasting. That's a perfect time for them to rest and eat, right? But they're not resting or eating, are they? Why? Because there's no time to. They're working feverishly. If you could picture it this way, it's such a narrow corridor. If you get just a little far away from the coast, the wind does what? It takes you out into open sea, and you're doomed. If you get just a little bit too close to the coast, what happens? You run aground, and you're destroyed. So it's just this narrow, narrow opportunity, and that's called coasting. Just wanted to lay that out for you. So, two main characters in the book. Now we've talked about part A, part B. Now we're going to get to the real point of the story. And I would reject all the arguments for all the other real points of the story. I think there's something much more important. We're going to start with the minor point and go to the major point. The minor point of the story is Paul. I know that comes as shock. But the minor point of the story is, is Paul. It's an important part, but it's a minor point. point. You'll find Paul show up throughout the text. First of all, he shows up, of course, in verse 1. Paul and some prisoners got on the ship. You'll find uh, just a little bit later, uh, verse 3, next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. That's when they're at Sidon. Um, and then you'll find Paul again mentioned as you work your way down. You'll see the we's, you know, we sailed, verse 7, but that's more talking about everybody that's there at that point. Uh, oh yeah, there's coasting, verse 8. The coasting word is at verse 8. Um, so as you work your way down, you come to verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them. This is where Paul speaks. He advises them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will, not, will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our own lives. Now, there's nothing in that statement in verse 9 that God has revealed yet to, them, to him this. He's most likely just, he's been sailing for quite some time. He's just probably looking at the, what he's learned about the, the, the uh, atmosphere and the time of the year and the sailing techniques, and he's putting two and two together, and he's saying, this is not good. You ever been there? You're looking at it saying, this just isn't good. And of course, because he's not a sailor, it is rejected. And so they sail anyway. We're going to talk about the centurion in light of that in just a few seconds. But um, So they, um, they didn't listen to what Paul said, verse 11, and so they set sail. You work your way down, um, and the next introduction to Paul, the next time Paul shows up, verse 21, since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And that says sail from Creek and, and incurred this injury and loss. Don't you love that comment, by the way? <laughs> I mean, doesn't that, it doesn't sound like I told you so. It sounds almost junior high-ish, doesn't it? You know, I told you you shouldn't do that. It's kind of like you get in the car and dance as well. We only got a quarter tank of gas and you as a good junior higher said, 
Dad, you ought to get gas. Ah, Dad says, well, you can do this. I could drive, I've driven further than that before. And then, lo and behold, it's a little bit later, put, 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 put. And the little junior high boy arrogantly says, what? Told you so, Dad. Yeah, Dad says, go push, exactly. But it, it doesn't end there, though. It sounds initially like this junior highish childishness, doesn't it? But it's not. Notice the context of what Paul's trying to say. Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Creek and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you and all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. So Paul doesn't merely do what we think he's doing, right? Quite to the contrary, Paul does what? Now I want you, I want you to think about this for a second. Remember, we're talking about the working of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, right? And what the working of the Holy Spirit in people's lives looks like, correct? Now in this case, Paul had a vision, right? Text is pretty clear. We don't expect that today, do we? You better answer no. We don't expect that today. However, what I find really intriguing about the text, and this is important, remember I said it's a, it's a, it's a secondary importance, I think, of the main point of the text, but it's very interesting. What does Paul do? After saying, you should have listened to me, the very first thing he does after that is to do what? He testifies of the truth, the truth of God, of the existence of God, the truth of God. He, tr- he testifies with regard to the God he serves and worships and believes in. And he prophesies. Now, we, again, we've got to look at this, and remember, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Just because he has a vision doesn't mean we should expect to have a vision. It's descriptive. Just because he prophesies doesn't mean that we should be expected to prophesy. Does that make sense? Very important. Just keeping the descriptive, prescriptive scenario separated. However, at the same time, what is important is to recognize that this is a great time for Paul to what? What does he have to gain to a group of desperate people who most likely, because this is the way sailors were back then, who were very suspicious people. Does that make sense? What does he have to gain? in the midst of of facing sure and certain doom and demise. What does he have to gain? He he knows what God said, right? Because God already just revealed to him what's going to happen. He doesn't say, God told me to tell you this, does he? He doesn't say that there. What does he have to gain by declaring it? Most likely, what do you think is going to come? But most likely, though, I'm just talking about just most likely what's going to happen, you think? Ridicule, persecution, hatred. I'm sorry? Oh, there we go, the Jonah thing. Yeah, possibly tossed overboard. But you get the point that most likely what's going to happen is not anything good, right? What's to gain by speaking? God's told him everything's going to be okay. God told him before he's going to make it to Rome, didn't he? Right? 
But what does Paul see? What does he see? Opportunity to proclaim Christ, right? Opportunity to proclaim the Sovereign Lord. Opportunity to point people to God. And what does he do? He takes it. And he runs with it. But in the midst of it, remember, he, he didn't just present all bed of roses, did he? They didn't run aground. They're going to be shipwrecked. But he declares the truth of what God declared to him. Why? Because what he wants more than anything else, the love of Christ is controlling him, and all he wants is for people to what? To believe in Christ. To be saved. To be transformed. And so he proclaims Christ. He proclaims God. So the 14 days come, and we, next time we meet with, uh, we come in contact with Paul is verse 31. Starting verse 30, And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, Unless these men stay on the ship, you, can, you cannot be saved. <clears throat> then the soldiers cut away the ropes and the ship's of the ship's boat and let it go. So Paul says, what? Again, what does he have to gain? If you think about this one. If you, if you thought there was something to gain before, what's to gain with this? Now he is the instigator of what? Of, of mutiny. I mean, these soldiers are, I mean, I'm sorry, these sailors want to get away, right? And he stopped them from getting away. Now think about this real clearly. He stopped them from getting away. Small community on the ship. You think everybody's going to know real quickly what happened? You know, exactly. And so there is a large group of people on that ship who were trying to get away. Correct? And they couldn't. Who are they going to hate? They're going to hate Paul. What do you think the chances are, now we know the storyline, what do you think the chances are there could be an accident in the middle of the darkness of night? Right? I mean, does, that, does that not make sense? But Paul... What? Paul trusted God. What did, Paul, what did God tell Paul? Twice. He told him, you're going, you're going to testify of me in Rome. So he, he said that once, and now he's saying, not only is he still going to do so and be safe, so is there everybody else on the ship. So that means, if they throw him overboard in the dark of night, for example, what's going to happen to, what's going to, happen to Paul? <laughs> He'll make it sure anyway, right? Like, because God promised, God is faithful, is He not? You said what this morning in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the confession? He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God, right? If He promised it, guess what? Is there any chance Paul could drown? No. And so Paul says, no, it doesn't matter what, what the seeming cost is. No. So, verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, taking, uh, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for uh, it will give you strength, and not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. There he, he, he if I use the term, he says we're doing sailing here, he tacks back to his earlier statement that everyone will survive. And so they, uh, Paul then takes, takes bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks to God, and the implication of the statement is not a private giving thanks to God, but he's giving it publicly out in the open. And in the presence of all, he breaks it and begins to eat. And they all are encouraged, and they eat some food themselves. 
That's where you find there's 276 people on the boat. Um, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea because they had to keep it afloat as much as possible. So they're even getting all of their contents, all the contents they were carrying being thrown out. And then the next time it shows up, the Paul shows up is verse 43, but the centurion wishing to save, save Paul kept, him for, uh, from carrying, kept them from carrying out their plans. Their plans uh, uh, is, are seen earlier. Uh, they were going to kill all the prisoners. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, and so the people are then saved. And all, all said and told, uh, they're brought safely to land. So there's Paul. And I, you remember I said that's a secondary importance. Important, yes, but a secondary importance. Not merely the color. It's secondary importance or a second storyline in the text is about Paul and how God uses Paul. And that's an important one because it's consistent with what we'll see in the most important thing in the entire text. But we see Paul, a man who hated Christ. We know the storyline, book of Acts. I'm folding into the storyline of Acts. He hated Christ. He hated the things of Christ. Therefore, he hated Christians. Jesus himself said, they hated me, they'll hate you also. Paul certainly hated Christians, did he not? And then he was gloriously saved on the road to Damascus, became a believer, a follower of Christ, and he immediately began to preaching Christ and Him crucified. He began to minister to saved people and presenting gospel to unsaved people, Jews and primarily Gentiles. And he, was, and he did it faithfully no matter what the cost, no matter what the price. No price was too high because Christ was of ultimate worth and value to Him. And that is evident every step of the way, isn't it? And even at this late date, He's now a prisoner. He's off to Rome. He had nothing to gain through this. He's still doing what? Because, and the reason why he's proclaiming Christ is why? Because the Spirit is working in him. I want to go back to where we started today. The reason why he's proclaiming Christ is because the Spirit is at work in him, doing what God promised would happen in true believers' lives. Does that make sense? That's important. That brings us to what I would argue is the central story in this chapter. And it's an intriguing story. Now I want you to follow it with me. Verse 1, we are introduced to Julius. I think Acts chapter 27 is all about Julius. Paul is secondary in the storyline. The 276, whether it's including the sailors and soldiers or just the passengers, including prisoners, just part of the color of the story. The story is Julius. It absolutely is Julius. We're introduced in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, he w- they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustine cohort named Julius. <clears throat> now, you'll notice it says they delivered uh, the Paul and some other prisoners to Julius. That, I would argue, does not exclude and this is important. I'm going to make some speculations in the storyline. Okay? But I don't think they're really speculation in light of the bigger story of the book of Acts. To say that they delivered Paul and the other prisoners to Julius does not mean Julius was never around before. Okay? It doesn't mean that. In fact, I would argue, 
This is why I, I use the term speculation, but I don't really think it's speculation. I would argue that the moment, several chapters earlier, that Paul, when he knew that they were to turn him over to the Jewish leaders to go back to Jerusalem and be tried, knowing that what's going to happen is, is what to Paul? If that happens, they're going to kill him on the road back to Jerusalem. So as a result of that, Paul does what? He appeals to Caesar. Which means he's going to be hauled off to Rome. Immediately when he, as a Roman citizen, declares this declaration of, I appeal to Caesar, the moment he does that, he ceases being a local prisoner. At that moment, he is no longer a local prisoner. It started in Jerusalem, then it, it traveled over to Antioch, and he's no longer a prisoner, if I use the term, he's no longer a prisoner of Festus, he's no longer a prisoner of Felix, he's no longer a prisoner of Agrippa. He is now a prisoner of Caesar, or a prisoner of Rome. Another way to put it is, he's now a prisoner of the Federals versus the locals. Does that make sense? Once he becomes a prisoner of the Federals, he would then start to be guarded by, what do you think? Federal soldiers. Roman marshals, exactly. And when he is now turned over, once he declares that, to being guarded, or to be, uh, to be taken to Rome, he begins to become guarded by federal soldiers. Who's a federal soldier in the storyline? Julius. I would argue most likely Julius and his, and, and his hundred were probably guarding him on a regular basis from the moment he declared himself to go to, to, uh, as a Roman citizen to be shipped off to Rome and to be tried by Caesar. If that is true, and it makes sense that it would be, historically that would make sense. Not necessarily Julius, but to the Federals. And Julius most likely would be the one. That would mean something. Here's what it would mean. And this is where it gets very interesting. If he is the leader of the guards that are guarding Paul, that would mean he'd be spending some time also where? Near Paul. That would mean most likely every time Paul gives a defense, guess who's there? Julius is there. What does that mean? If Julius is there, every time he gives a defense, what is Julius hearing? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He's hearing it presented at least three times. But also, he is able to move around freely. The text says that already in previous chapters. So he's going to various places. People are coming to him. He's going to various places. But you know as a, as a prisoner of Rome, guess what? When he goes to someone else's place, guess who goes with him? Some soldiers would. And maybe at times, Julius would. Would that not make sense? This becomes really intriguing as we work our way through this text, but outside this text as well. What am I trying to get to? 
if Julius is, has his hundred that he's in charge of overseeing Paul, and he's hearing the gospel repeatedly, do you think there's a possibility? Maybe? The Holy Spirit would start working in Julius's life? Think it's a possibility? Well, here's the question. Is there any statements in this text that indicates that maybe the Spirit's working in Julius's life? Could I just say this? I think it fairly drips off, these page, off this chapter. I think you can't miss it if you listen to the text. You just can't. Let's work our way through it again. <clears throat> so, Paul and some other soldiers, I'm sorry, some other prisoners, and Luke is with, with him, and Aristarchus is with him, and Luke and Aristarchus are also doing what? Proclaiming Christ, preaching the gospel. They're turned over to Julius. They get on the ship, and they sail. They arrive at Sidon. Verse 3. Julius, notice what it says. Julius treats Paul kindly and gives him leave to, go, leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So his friends in Sidon, right? We don't know who they are at this point, just friends in Sidon. And Julius, it says, treated Paul kindly. That's an interesting statement. Treating prisoners kindly is an intriguing statement. I wonder, now I'm going to play a little loose here, but I wonder if Paul's choice is purposeful on the word kindly. I just wonder. I know it's more of an Old Testament concept, but that idea of loving kindness, the covenant loyalty that you see Rahab talk about to the spies, I showed covenant loyalty to you, now please show covenant loyalty to me. Loving kindness. There's many places in the Old Testament. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. The word used in the, Old, in the Greek Old Testament for loving kindness is the same word used here. Is there a connection? It makes you wonder. Loving kindness is not that same. It doesn't show up as strongly in the New Testament as the Old Testament, but it is intriguing that Luke uses the same word. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly. Why would a guard of a prisoner treat a prisoner kindly? That's almost unheard of in any era, isn't it? Especially then. What has Paul gone through as a prisoner up to this point? Has, it, has he seen any kindness? The only time he saw kindness was when? There was one time. Do you remember when? The Philippian jailer after he repented and believed. And the, and, and, and the Philippian jailer then showed, showed much kindness to him. Did he not? It's the only time. I wonder. It's intriguing. If you didn't hear, Charles just said, are you saying Julius was a believer? I think the text seems to say he was. Let's follow it through. 
So he shows kindness to him in verse 3 and gives him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, if that kindness involved you know, letting him go to his friends, which it says it did, but if it still meant that either he or some of his soldiers went with him, and most likely they did, that meant they, if he went to his friends, they were hearing what? Do you think when Paul got together with his friends inside and they were talking about the scores of the latest sports game? Do you think they were talking about the weather? Do you think they were talking about the latest computer games? Do you think they were talking about politics? Or do you think his friends and he were talking about the Lord? What do you think? I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? And if either Julius or some soldiers with him, it would not make any sense that somebody wouldn't be with Paul, they'd be once again hearing what? The gospel. So then he put out to sea, and then the next time we have this interaction, we have this whole thing where Paul is saying, I don't think we should sail. And it is interesting to notice, by the way, what happens next. He says, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. What does verse 11 say? Does it say the captain of the ship disagreed with Paul? Who disagreed with Paul at this point? The centurion did. I mean, in effect, in effect, it says in verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. You know why it puts it that way? Because who's in charge of the ship? The centurion is. Interestingly enough, not the captain or the pilot of the ship. The pilot ship's giving input. Other people are giving input. Paul's giving input. Then centurion's making the decision whether we should go or not. Why? Well, there's two reasons why. Number one, it's hauling prisoners, right? But number two, it's also hauling wheat, we find out later. And being a grain ship, it automatically is, an, is, is um, a, a federal ship. So the centurion's in charge. The pilot's not in charge. He directs the, the workers to work, but the centurion says yes or no. And when the centurion speaks, it's, it's done. For whatever reason, the centurion pays more attention to the pilot, most likely because even though Paul's got experience, the, the, the pilot has much more experience, does he not? Je not just with weather, not just with the time of year, but also with that ship. He has more experience, so the centurion defaults to the pilot and decides they're going to sail anyway. You'll notice, however, in all that Paul says here, is Paul speaking in this section about what God told him? No, it starts off with Paul saying what? I perceive. What authority does Paul have? Well, none. He's just sharing his perceptions. In that statement, he carries, his, his words carry no more weight than you and I would. It would make sense for the, the centurion to hear what he has to say, but to make his own decisions, right? But something radically changes. Everything goes crazy, of course. And they're having problems, they're fighting, and everything's out of control. Verse 21. And we saw it before, but I'll read it again. Men, Paul says, you should have listened to me and, and have not set sail from Creek and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you and all those to, uh, who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God 
that it would be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. And what happens? Yeah, ultimately they run aground, right? But here's what's interesting. Here's the difference from what we just saw about his I perceive statement to now this is what, this is not I perceive, does it? Is it? He declares what? This is what God says. This is what God says. Take heed. Relax. We're all going to be okay. So they get after it, and they start, they start working hard. For 14 days, they're trying to cross. And then they notice that it's getting shallower and shallower. And then they, it's getting so shallow, verse 29, that they're afraid they're gonna, the sailors are afraid they're going to run up on the rocks. So they put down four anchors from the stern. And it's nighttime, and they pray that they'll come. Simple state, statement. Verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. This is the same boat that before was, was full. They typically dragged their, their, their lifeboat behind in those days. And it probably capsized and, and was full of water and it was causing problems. So they drug it up. That's what it says earlier. They drug it up. But now they lower it and the, soldier, or the sailors are lying and say, we're going to put anchors out from the bow as well. Paul, verse 31, says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. And what does the centurion tell the soldiers to do? Cut the rope. They didn't, the centurion didn't listen before, did he? Didn't listen at all. Why? I perceive. But now, what, what is the centurion doing? Paul speaks. It's based upon what? Paul speaking here in verse 31 is based upon what? He's still speaking in regard to his vision. Is he not? He's still speaking with regard to um, 22 through 26. When he says in verse 31... Unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. It's based upon what he said earlier. And the centurion does what? And you've got to understand, this is in an instant. This is not, oh, let's get a council together and talk about what we should do. The boat's being lowered. Does that make sense? The people are about to climb. The sailors are about to climb in the ship and leave everyone there. And they're going to head to shore on their ship, on their other, other boat. In an instant, Paul goes to the centurion and says, if they do that, everybody on the ship dies. And the centurion tells his soldiers, go out there and cut the rope. In an instant. Based upon what? Based upon what? It has to be based upon what God had said earlier. It has to be. And then as a result of that, we come down and, and then the people are saved. And the, the storyline describes um, how, how the people are, or first of all, how they throw their wheat overboard, but then, then they try to head towards the shore once daylight comes and they strike a reef and uh, the stern gets battered by the surf 
And then you come to verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. Which is the exact thing that the soldiers should do. If a soldier loses a prisoner, the soldier dies. The soldier's killed. And so the answer is, rather than losing a soldier and get killed, we'll kill the soldiers and we'll live. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you kill a soldier, you'll survive. If you don't, then you, then you will be killed. What did I say? Kill the prisoners, sorry. If the soldiers kill the prisoners, they'll survive. If they don't, then they, will, they themselves will be killed. So it makes complete sense that the soldiers should kill the prisoners. Verse 43, but, once again, what enter, who enters into the storyline? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And then he tells them a better plan, right? Whereby everyone will be saved. Why would the centurion do that? It doesn't make any sense. The best course of action is for the centurion to agree with the soldiers and to slaughter all the prisoners. It's the only thing that makes sense. The centurion to say no means the centurion is willing to what? To lose his life. Because, think about it for a second. Think about the mayhem in getting 276, whether that's everybody or just the passengers. 276 people to shore. Some people can fit in the boat. Not everybody. Some people can swim. Not everybody. Oh, they could get in the boat because the boat's gone. So, some can swim. Others are going to just grab floats them and jets them and try to get to shore. Correct? You think it's going to be orderly? You think it's going to be organized? You think there's a possibility that some, some prisoners are going to get there before the soldiers do and they're going to escape? Think it's a possibility? In fact, it's not just a possibility, is it? It's a probability. Especially if some of the prisoners can swim. They're going to get there first. If they get there first, most likely, knowing how prisoners really are, what's going to happen? They're going to escape. That would make sense, wouldn't it? But the centurion does what? He puts his very life on the line, does he not? Why? Because God declared through Paul, what? That everyone will survive. And he puts his life on the line. Even though the promise was not that all prisoners would stay there. Correct? He still puts his life on the line. Why? Yes, but notice what it says specifically. But the centurion wishing to what? Verse 43. Wishing to save Paul. You've got to ask yourself a big question. Why would the centurion be wishing to save Paul? What's in it for him? What in the world would be in it to him to save Paul? There's nothing in it for him. If Paul survives, what does the centurion gain? Nothing. Because if the other prisoners escape, any of them, what happens to the centurion? He dies. It doesn't say wishing to save all of the prisoners. It says wishing to save Paul. 
Why does he wish to save Paul? Now you could argue because God is sovereign and that's true. But the storyline is consistent every step of the way through Acts 27, is it not? He's acting in ways that are not natural. Natural is self-preservation, is it not? And he's acting directly contrary to that every step of the way. Every step of the way. Why? It has to cause you to ask the question, why? And the only answer that possibly can come up, in my way of thinking anyway, is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has been at work in Julius's life. And even though the text doesn't say he was saved, I would argue the evidence of salvation is pretty clear in the text. He's acting towards Paul in a way that's not natural to act towards a prisoner. Even at the cost of potentially his own life. He's acting, to go back to the passage, he's acting kindly towards Paul. And I just don't think that kindly is nice. As we would think about kindly. He's being nice to him. You don't act nice to somebody at the cost of your own life, potentially. But I look at the text, and it seems to me like what we have, not just in Acts 27, but you have it every step of the way through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is constantly establishing a contrast between those the Spirit is at work in and those the Spirit's not at work in. Between those that the Spirit is making alive, Ephesians chapter 2, and those the Spirit's not making alive. Isn't that what you see? It's everywhere, every page of Acts. It's constant. You see him going to the Jewish synagogues, and what happens? He show, it's, Luke records clearly, this is what it looks like when people are not saved. When the Spirit is not making them alive. When the Spirit is not regenerating them, this is what it looks like. And then to the contrast, he goes out and he meets with some Gentiles, and most times only a few repent and believe, right? And the vast majority of the Jews do what? They persecute, they hate, they stone, they beat, they imprison, they despise, they mock, and it's presented graphically, isn't it? Here is what it looks like in the temple when the Spirit is not at work in people. Here's what it looks like with the Gentiles when the Spirit is at work with people and when the Spirit's not at work with people. You see it every page. Right? Would it, should it not be expected you see the exact same thing in this, in this big, vast, chapter 27 narrative? Should you not expect to see the same thing? I think you should. And when you come to chapter 27, that's exactly what you see. First of all, you see Paul. Is the Spirit working Paul? Oh my goodness, what's happening? He's proclaiming God, isn't he? He's proclaiming a God that saves, is he not? He absolutely is. Boldly, fearlessly he is. And then here we hear this guy, Julius. A centurion. An elite centurion. Who's acting decidedly on, on elite. He's acting decidedly on centurion-esque. He's acting like someone who is a fellow believer. He's acting like someone who's been grafted into the vine. <laughs> and his focus is on what? The one who is proclaiming the gospel. Isn't he? 
And he's willing to lay his life down for the one who's preaching the gospel. He's willing to, 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 to care for, show kindness to. He's willing to respond instantaneously to what God has told, told Paul. He's absolutely committed to taking care of and protecting Paul, saving Paul. You see it every step of the way? What's the point of the text? The point of the text is the same as it's been every step of the way. Don't care if you're a Jew. Don't care if you're a Gentile. Don't even care if you're a centurion of the elite guard. Right? Don't even care. The only thing that matters is what? Is the Spirit at work or is He not? And we have the contrast even closer, do we not? Festus, Felix, Agrippa. We saw the storyline in the last chapter with two of the three. Spirit not working, Spirit working. It's the only answer. That's what Luke does every step of the way. It shows the contrast. Now I'm going to wrap this up for a second, in a second, but I want to say this, two more things. First, what do we do with this? And then second, I'm going to get, at last, I'm going to make a really big speculation. But what do we do with this? Well, what we do with this, I think appropriately, how do we view this? I think we must look at this text from the perspective of what we've seen every step of the way. See, I think too often we as Christians today think, and I want to go back to this again, we think that Christians can be Christians just as they claim to be Christians, even if it doesn't evidence, even if the Spirit doesn't evidence Himself working in their lives. That they're still Christians because somehow they confessed Jesus, they raised their hand, they, 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 they prayed a prayer, they walked an aisle, but they're never changed. They're not different. That's contrary to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are very clear that when the Spirit moves in someone's life and makes them alive, something happens. They begin to hate the things they once loved and they begin to love the one they once hated. That's what happens. And when that happens, the love of Christ controls them and they, as a result, act different. And that's the acts that we find in the book. They're acting the way they're acting. That's the point of Luke's writing in the book of Acts. These people are acting the way they're acting. Why? Because of the love of Christ is controlling them. That's why. Now I know the difficulty of the text is there's no place in the text that says that Julius confessed Christ and received Christ to be a Savior. There's no place in the text that says that. But it's the only thing that makes sense of all the ways in which Julius responds. And the point of the book of Acts is primarily this very thing, to show what happens when the Spirit moves in someone's life. So I would argue that's the point of Julius in the storyline is to show even the centurion, this is what it looks like. That should be expected. It should be expected that when the Holy Spirit moves in our life, takes us from death to life. Even Ephesians 2 tells us this, doesn't it? Right after he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, as the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The very next verse after that says what? Charles, do you remember? After 2, 8, and 9, what does it say next? Yes. That He's prepared in advance for you to walk in them. Amen? You know what that means? That means you're saved by grace through faith, and then because you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, what's going to happen is, not that now you've got to work. Get to work. Come on, everybody, get to work. 
which is what most pastors do. They try to guilt people into doing work, right? That's not the point. What happens is these works are prepared beforehand that you will walk in them. Not that you should or that you must, that you will walk in them. It's what the Spirit does in our lives as believers. The result is if I'm saved by grace through faith alone, the result is that works will flow and they're works of faith that the Spirit does in us. We work because He works. And that's exactly what's happening in Julius' life. That should be expected. It should absolutely be expected. And when that's not there, it should call into question not do they need to grow better. It should call into question do they need Jesus. And I would argue again, there is no crisis. You heard me say many times, there is no crisis. If I'm talking to somebody because I'm struggling with, I don't see them growing in Christ. There's no crisis if I talk to you about the gospel, is there? Because I need the gospel today. You need the gospel today. I don't care who you are. If you're a believer, you need the gospel. If you're not a believer, you need the gospel. Is there a crisis on the other side of the coin? If I just presume somebody because they say they're a believer, is there a crisis if I say, well, they say they're a believer, they're a believer, and I don't tell them the gospel. I don't proclaim the gospel. Is there a crisis there? There absolutely is a crisis there. And if if I love Christ, if I truly love Christ, guess what's going to happen again? The works that I has been designed for me from before the foundation of the world is what? That I'll walk in them, and what are those? Proclaiming Christ, right? And loving other believers and ministering to other believers. Should that be expected? That's exactly what we see here, I would argue. Now, here's my speculation. I just want, I'm just going to throw you, this is just a speculation bomb, okay? It really is. It's a massive speculation bomb that I'm just going to drop right in the middle of the room. I wonder, I'll start out that way to make it really clear that it's a speculation. I wonder about Julius. I do. I wonder if Julius, this centurion, is the same centurion at the cross. I don't know. I wonder. And the reason why I wonder is because Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, mentions the centurion. At the end of, close to the end of the book, he mentions the centurion. And close to the end of Acts, he mentions a centurion. It sets a mind to wonder, doesn't it? I wonder. If that was his first introduction to Jesus, when he declared, surely this man is innocent, as Luke describes it. And perhaps, upon guarding and overseeing the guarding of of Paul and hearing the gospel presentations, the Spirit moved. Started it then, and completed sometime during his defenses. I wonder. Again, speculation. We don't have any more data than that. There are tons of, of centurions. Just set your mind to wondering if perhaps the younger centurion there eventually gets promoted to elite guard And then this happens. It's intriguing, isn't it? Again, it just sets your mind to wondering. And then to add to it, Philippians has already been written by, the, by, the, by now. And, fa- and, and in Philippians, he's guarded by the Praetorian Guard. In chapter 1, he says it very clearly. And he's been ministering to the Praetorian Guard 
and the Praetorian Guard have been getting saved. It's all, I, I've, called it, I've called it the, um, um, the prison seminary as they're guarding Paul. And they're handcuffed to him for 8 to 12 hours at a pop. And then that's in chapter 1. And in chapter 4, Paul, when he finishes his letter to the Philippians, he says, oh, by the way, as, as he's saying his greetings, he says, oh, by the way, those of Caesar's household send their greeting. What's he talking about? Well, most likely, he's ministering to some Praetorian guards. Some of them are getting saved. And then they're going into Caesar's household with the rest of their guarding, and maybe some of Caesar's household got saved. Isn't that intriguing? I wonder if there's a connection between all three of those. I don't have enough data to say. It's just speculation. But wouldn't that be something? The Praetorian guards saw Jesus die, and said, surely this man is innocent. And then he ended up guarding Paul in Philippi. Or not in Philippi, I mean elsewhere, but he's right when he's writing the Philippians. And he gets saved. It's just an idea. It's intriguing. A thought process. That being said, I would argue that it seems to me by the evidence that this centurion perhaps was a saved person. It would make complete sense. And the evidence of his salvation is just all over the place in this chapter. As should be expected. Should it not? That people who hear the gospel, if the Spirit works, they will be saved. And when they're saved, the evidence will flow that they are believers. It will demonstrate it towards other people that they're grafted into the vine and they will show kindness to one another and they will listen to the word of God and they will be transformed and continue to be transformed. So I would argue then that Julius is a great picture as we've gotten many others before here, a great picture of what it looks like to be a believer. So I would encourage you as you look at the text, as you continue to study the text, to be challenged by this continuing teaching in the book of Acts. If he began the good work in you, of course Philippians says that, he will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's seemingly exactly what's happening with Julius. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to understand how your spirit works in our lives. Help us to understand what is what should be expected in believers' lives. Help us to understand and to hear your truth. Open our eyes to see. And I pray, Lord, that you will do what you promised to do, transform us, so that <clears throat> when we see or hear your word, your spirit will draw us to love those things that are declared and to respond to the truth for your glory, even at our own cost. Because the cost to suffer for you, if necessary, only and merely shows the great and amazing love you have for us. So help us to understand and to grow and to love and to glorify you. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's sing, shall we?